0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton podcast. Well, that 78% of millennials are putting marriage off longer and longer and longer, and in some cases, putting it off altogether. And the number one reason, the top reason that the millennial generation is putting off marriage is because of the threat of divorce. They've seen the divorce uh, uh, record of, of the previous generation, and it scares them. It frightens them. They don't want anything to do with it, so they're putting off marriage. Well, in a sense, that's the same sentiment that the Corinthians had. Because of, of things like divorce and, and adultery and, and prostitution, many of the Corinthians had, had viewed marriage as a joke. Many of them were saying, you know what, if you're truly spiritual, you know, if, if, you're, if, if you're serious about following God, well, then, then you're going to stay single. You're going to kiss marriage goodbye. And so really, that was the culture that Paul's dealing with. <coughs> Pardon me. So as we go back now to verse 1, we, we, we see that that's the culture. Paul was, was dealing with a culture that was literally kissing marriage goodbye. So again, verse 1, Paul says, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, I should have mentioned that this is a PG-13 message. Most of you look like you're qualified. Now, uh, we should point out that, that we, we are now entering a, a new section of the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, you may remember in our introduction week, I would given you the outline of the book of Corinthians. and And here's the outline. The outline is that, The first four chapters, the Apostle Paul was confronting division in that church, division among Christians in the church. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul then confronts moral issues in the church, namely sexual immorality in the church. But now, starting in chapter 7 all the way to chapter 16, chapter 7 to the end of the book, now the Apostle Paul is, is answering their questions. You see, they had written Paul a letter, and in that letter, they were asking Paul a series of questions. They're they're asking questions about marriage. They they were asking questions about Christian freedoms, about about spiritual gifts, about the resurrection, and about giving. And so now Paul is answering the first of their questions here in verse 1 when he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now we want to note that that section is in quotations. When he says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, it was in quotations, which is the English translator's way of letting us know that, that, that Paul was quoting them. You see, this was not his statement. This was not his feeling. This was not his opinion. This was their question. He's quoting them. They were the ones asking this question. And, and, and so they ask, is it, is it good for a man uh, not to have uh, you know, s- sexual relations with a woman? And, and it's in quotations. Now, it's interesting. Uh, many English translations render this slightly differently. Uh, for example, the New King James Version, it says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But the NIV says, it is good for a man not to marry. And so it's Interesting. You have one translation that says, you know, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with the woman. Another translation says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And another translation says it's good for a man not to marry. So when we put them all together, here's the essence of their question. In effect, what they were asking is this. They were asking, is, is celibacy, or in other words, is remaining unmarried, you know, staying single and celibate, is that better, is that more spiritual than getting married? Now, you might wonder, why in the world were they asking such a question? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, it, 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 there were two reasons for them to ask such a question. Reason number one, and we've talked about this before, was that, was that the city of Corinth was really the, the sin capital of the ancient world. You know, I mean, this was a city that was, that was world famous for prostitution, for both male prostitutes and female prostitutes. It was a city that was, that was famous for pornography and for adultery and for all kinds of other things. And so because of all of that, many of the Christians in Corinth basically believed that all sex, even sex in the context of marriage, they believed that all sex was evil, that all sex was sinful, and that it should be avoided at all costs, even if you're married. So that was reason number one. Nobody wrote that down, but that should have changed your life. Now, reason number two that they were asking this question was because of the divorce rate. The divorce rate. Now, now, listen, this should pique our interest. I mean, this should speak to us, especially when you consider that the United States has the highest divorce rate in the world right now. And, and yet, our divorce rate is nothing compared to the divorce rate of the ancient Roman Empire. In fact, their divorce rate was, was so high that, that, that there was actually a famous joke common in the Roman Empire where they'd say, you know what, you can count a person's years by the number of times they've been married and divorced. And so uh, there's this high divorce rate. Now, to understand the divorce rate, you first of all need to understand how people got married back in the Roman Empire. There are basically four different forms of marriage that were considered legal in the Roman Empire. Let me break them down for you. Uh, uh, You know, example number one, form of marriage number one would be called contubernium, which, which translated means tent companionship. Tent companionship. And really, this was the form of marriage for slaves. Now consider this. Remember that more than half of the Roman Empire, in other words, more than 60 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves. More than 60 million people were slaves. And so what would happen is oftentimes a slave owner would allow one of his male slaves to live with one of the, one of the female slaves, and they would be legally married in Rome's eyes but the problem is that the slave owner could sell one or both of them at any moment and thus dissolve the marriage. So when you think about it, I mean, that alone could account for millions of divorces in the Roman Empire. And so first of all, there was was slave marriage, but then number two was a form of marriage called usis. Now, usis uh, was was really the, the Roman version of common law marriage. In that day, if you, if you lived together for, for more than a year, lived together for more than 12 months, then you were married in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the Roman Empire. Now listen, that's, you know, that, that, that applies today, right? I mean, that is common in our day, common law marriage, common, anyway. So, but you know, it, it's common in our day. In fact, did you know that, that, that over the past 50 years, the percentage of couples who were living together before marriage has, has increased by over 900%. By over 900%. Leading one author uh, of of a study, uh, speaking of the millennial generation, to say this. He says, millennials are opting for, quote-unquote, test drive nuptials. You know, they want to test it before they buy it. They want to try it out. They want to make sure it's going to work. Which is why 70% of, of millennials are living together before marriage. Uh, you know, cohabitating. In, in fact, cohabitation is more common among the millennial generation than any other generation in our nation's history. In our nation's history. Why? Well, because as, as I said earlier, the, the number one reason why they're living together is because they're trying to prevent divorce. They saw how their parents got divorced, now their parents' parents got divorced, and in some cases, multiple divorces, and they don't want it to happen to them. They're afraid of it. They're trying to prevent it, and so they, they live together first. They try it before they buy it, and yet, ironically enough, study after study after study shows that couples who live together before marriage are actually 33% more likely to end up divorced. Now, it's ironic. I mean, they're moving in, they're, they're living together, trying to prevent a divorce, but they're actually making it 33% more likely to get divorced. And so that's the culture we live in. So there was slave marriage, there was common law marriage, then number three, there was what was called quimtio in manum. Now this would translate would be marriage by sale. Marriage by sale. Keep in mind this was a patriarchal society, meaning the father ruled the home. And as a result, the father had the right to sell his daughter to the highest bidder. It had nothing to do with love. had nothing to do with her desires. It had everything to do with money. It didn't matter who it was or even how old they were. All that mattered was how much money was involved. Marriage by sale. And then fourth and finally... And this would be considered uh, the highest form of marriage. It was considered first-class marriage. And this was a, a, a marriage where, where there would be a wedding ceremony. The bride would wear a dress. Uh, vows would be exchanged between the bride and the groom. There would be a maid of honor. There would be a best man. In fact, this was the form of marriage that was, that was uh, adopted by, by, by the Catholic Church and then ultimately then adopted by the Protestant Church. And it's the form of marriage that, that basically we still follow uh, to this very day. But here was the problem. The problem was, was that in ancient Rome, quite frankly, it did not matter which one of the four models of marriage you happened to participate in, which one of the four models you were, you, you were involved in, statistically speaking, in the Roman Empire, your marriage was doomed for divorce. The highest divorce rate in history. And so be, because of such a high divorce rate, and then on top of that, because of, of all this flagrant sexual sin, many Corinthians uh, that were Christians came to view marriage as sinful, and they came to view singleness as holiness. They came to view singleness as, as, as being holy. So what was happening in the church is, is that many singles were choosing to stay single, and then again, many marrieds were choosing to become single again they were choosing to get divorced. They were literally kissing marriage goodbye. That's the culture that Paul's writing to. That's what's happening behind the scenes. And that's why he's writing this. And so now as we pick it up again in verse one, verses one through five, we need to keep in mind that the real question being asked is this, is is, is celibacy next to godliness? That's what they're asking. So verse 1, Paul says again, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but, Paul says... Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should, should 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 give his wife his her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by, by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now again, we need to keep in mind that that, that Paul was dealing with, 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 with with a group of Christians who wrongly believed that being celibate was a sign of holiness, that being celibate was a sign of spirituality. So again, many Christians were taking a vow of celibacy, vowing never to get married. And then also, many married people were, were, were getting divorced, or if they were not getting divorced, if they chose to stay married, what they would do is take a vow of celibacy anyway. They were married, they stay married, but they vowed to never touch each other that way. Now, this is what happened to Leo Tolstoy, the author. Now, if you don't know Tolstoy's story, Tolstoy was a Christian, but he was a tormented Christian because of his life of legalism. He, he chose to take all these vows to try, to try to overcome the desires of the flesh that he considered to be sinful. And so he, he, he tried to seek holiness and find holiness by, by making vow after vow where he'd vowed to give up things like hunting or, or smoking or drinking or eating meat. And on more than one occasion, he took a vow of celibacy, forcing his wife Sonia to, to, to sleep in a completely different bedroom. Now, by the way, that vow never actually lasted very long as, as his wife Sonia's 16 pregnancies would bear witness to but this was what was happening with the corinthians they're they're writing and they're basically asking is is celibacy next to godliness is it more spiritual to be celibate even if you're married and so paul he answers him in verse two and he says because of the of the temptation uh, to, to sexual morality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband so in effect paul's saying this he's saying you know what because you Corinthians live in the sin capital of the world, you know, because because you live in the in the in the land of, of temple prostitutes, in the land of pornography, in the land of adultery, in the land of you name it. Because of all of the sexual temptation that you are surrounded by, he's saying, you know what? Married couples should not deprive each other in, in the name of of quote unquote being spiritual. In the name of, quote-unquote, trying to be holy. He says, because all you're doing is, is you're, just, you're just setting up your spouse for, for moral failure. If you keep doing this, then, then it's just a matter of time before one or both of you fall into sin. Now, he does say that, say that there's an exception. And the exception is, you know, maybe you know, something really big is going on in your life. You know, something something really hard is going on, and and so both of you uh, agree that that for a short time, you you need to direct all of your time and and all of your energy to prayer seeking the Lord. You know, and so you you want to see the Lord move in this big situation. You know, it's sort of like, like fasting. You know, from time to time, you know, maybe maybe certain things come up in your life. Maybe it's spiritual warfare or, you know, maybe, maybe uh, someone you love is on their deathbed or maybe there's a financial crisis or something else happens. And, and so uh, there's these times where, you know, you want to see the Lord move in that situation and you decide that in addition to praying, you're also going to fast. In addition to praying, you're, you're going to give up a meal or you're going to give up, you know, eating for a short period of time. And so that every time you get hungry, those hunger pains remind you to pray about your desperate situation. And, and, and so in the same way, sometimes what Paul's saying is that, you know what, maybe as a married couple, there may be a, 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 a rare occasion where you have to have an intimacy fast, you know, where, where, you know, for a short time, and by the way, an agreed upon period of time, instead of seeking intimacy with each other, instead, you, you, you are seeking the Lord in prayer. But Paul's saying, you know what? It, 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 that, that's the exception, not the rule. And, and it doesn't happen forever. It's a short period of time. But he, he, and he's saying, you know what? You're not doing this because you're trying to become more spiritual. You're not doing this because you're trying to become you know, more holy. No, you're doing it because there's a big problem in your life. And you feel that, that all of your time, all of your energy needs to be directed on the Lord for a short period of time. But he says it's the exception, not the rule. Now with that, verses 6 through 8, Paul now is telling them that they need to be content with where God has called you. Be content with where God has called you. Verse 6, he says, Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, it's interesting. Paul here just said in this last verse that he is single. This is often debated. You know, we, we often debate if, if, if the Apostle Paul was ever married. And many people think that he was, and there's reason for that. The general rule of thumb is that in general, we, we view that Paul probably was married at one time in his life. And why do we say that? Well, because we know that he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And if you know the Jewish Sanhedrin, that's like the Jewish Supreme Court. But according to the Jewish Talmud, in order to be a member of the, of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. It was a qualification for office. If you were not married, you were not qualified. So because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he must have been married. And so, and so historically, yes, he was probably married, but right here, we just read that he said that he was single. So we wonder, well, what happened to, to his wife? Well, now some, you know, think that, well, maybe, maybe she died, leaving him as a widower. Or, or then again, maybe she divorced him when, when he became a Christian. Because we know that historically, the rabbis in those days were teaching that, that you were to divorce your spouse if your spouse ever became a Christian. But whether he was a widower or, 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 or a divorcee, we do not know. But what we know is, is, is that at the moment, he was single. Now, by the way, let me just say a word here about Singleness. Is it just me or have you noticed in the church today, you know, in, in the Christian world, we kind of just push marriage. We, we push marriage to, to, to such an extent, to such a point that, that you know, single people can, can, can start to feel like there's something wrong with them because they're single. You know, they, you know, they start to feel like they're a second-class citizen in the church. In fact, you know, think about it. Those of us that are married and we have single friends, what do we do? We often try to fix them up with someone else, right? Think about that phrase, fix them up. I mean, just the word fix in and of itself seems to imply that we think that there's something broken with them. Something's not working. Something needs to be fixed. And yet 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7 tells us that singleness is a gift. That it's a gift. It doesn't just say that it's good. It actually says that it's a gift. Now, by the way, most singles, and, and I remember thinking this way when I was single, but most singles, you hear that phrase, singleness is a gift, and more than likely you're thinking, yeah, well, what, what's, the, what's the return policy on that gift? You know, and, and oftentimes, you know, those of us that are Christians, you know, we, we, we look at singleness, and we say things like this, we say, singleness, well, that's a calling. I mean, you've got to be called to endure that. Well, it says that it's a gift. The point is that very few of us, I mean, we we all agree that marriage is a gift, but very few of us really treat singleness like it's a gift from God. Now, on that note, we notice at the end of verse 7 what it actually says. At the end of verse 7, it says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So what is he saying? Well, yeah, he's saying that, yes, singleness is a gift, but he's also saying that marriage is also a gift. One of one kind and one of another. Singleness is a gift from God, but so is your marriage a gift from God. So in effect, what he's saying is this. He's saying, you know what? Why not enjoy where God has you? Why not enjoy what you've got? Why not be content with where God has put you? If you're single at the moment, then you know what? Treat it like a gift from God. Stop stop dwelling on it like like you've got something wrong with you, but enjoy the gift that God's given you at this moment. It's a gift from God. But then again, he's saying, if you're married, then stop relishing on the good old days before you were married. (laughs) Enjoy the gift you have now. Your marriage is a gift from God. Treat it that way. Now, verse 9, the Apostle Paul is going to show us how to live in a world that's kissing marriage goodbye. Verse 9, he says, After he tells them to remain single as he is single, he then says, But, verse 9, if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, you know. Nowadays, how, how a lot of us tend to read that verse is as we read it like this, we say, well, you know what it's saying is, is that if you cannot control your lust, then you're better off getting married. Like someone wants to marry some lust crazed, you know, just <laughs> I mean you know, you know, or what we often say is, you know, to, to a young couple we might say, hey, instead of having a long engagement, you know, where, where you might be setting yourself up for 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 moral failure for some kind of a fall, you should probably get married quickly, get married as quickly as you can. Well, now, remember, the reality is that the Apostle Paul was answering their questions. And their question was not, you know, sh- should, we, should we have a short engagement so, so we can avoid slipping up? No, their question was, was hey, with, with all the sexual immorality in our world, with, with, with all the divorce in our culture, with, with this thing and that thing, you know, you know, should we even bother to get married? I mean, wouldn't it be, uh, you know, better? Wouldn't we be more godly? Wouldn't we be more spiritual if we just stayed single? I mean, isn't singleness next to godliness? And so Paul now is responding to that question. And, And in effect, what he's saying, hey, He's saying, listen, as a fellow single myself, the Apostle Paul is saying, he's saying, you know what? I can tell you that that being single is a good thing. Being single is a a gift from God. Why? Well, because you can take all of that time and energy that you would have had to invest in in cultivating a, a healthy marriage, and you can instead take all that time and energy and you can use it to serve God. You can use it to spread the gospel and spread the kingdom of God. But, he goes on to add, not everyone can do that. Not everyone can handle that. Not everyone has that call on their life. He's saying, hey, I would encourage all singles to be single like I am, the Apostle Paul says. But not everyone is called to do that. He's saying, listen, some of you have, ha, ha, since, since you were children, have been craving, you've always had this picture, you've always desired to be married and to have a family. And he's saying, you know, if that's you, if you've always seen yourself with a family and you desire that kind of companionship, then the last thing you want to do is force yourself to be single for the rest of your life. You're going to set yourself up for failure and frustration. Only those who don't have that desire for a family, only those who don't have that desire for that kind of relationship should be pursuing that kind of a lifestyle. So there really, there's two takeaways from this passage this morning. Takeaway number one is is that singleness is a gift. Singleness is a gift. And then takeaway number two is that marriage is also a gift. Marriage is also a gift, but listen to this. Not only is marriage a gift, it's also a mystery. So takeaway number two is that marriage is a gift and it's a mystery. Now let's break those down. Uh, Takeaway number one, we said singleness was a gift, and it is. It's a gift from God. And that's true whether you're called to singleness for the rest of your life, or you're just called for singleness for this stage of your life. Whatever it is, it's a gift from God. But it is true that there are some cases where there are people who have been called to be single for life. For example, Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, he says this. He says, there are different reasons why some men cannot marry. Some men were born without the ability to become fathers. Others were made that way later in life by other people. And some men uh, have given up marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. Now listen, in general, the, the scripture teaches that the average man and the average woman were designed and created by God to be married that the average man and woman have this desire in them for that kind of connection, that kind of a relationship. But what Jesus is teaching is that there are rare instances, there are these rare exceptions where someone might be called to be single lifelong. And that's the kind of person that doesn't have that desire, the kind of person that, that, you know, they don't have that desire for that kind of intimacy. They don't have that desire for that kind of, uh, of, 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 of connection they're perfectly content to be single. They're single and they enjoy it. And so this is the kind of person who can use all of their time and all of their energy to further the kingdom of God. I think a great example of that, other than the Apostle Paul, of course, would be a man named John Stott. Now, John Stott was a Bible scholar and commentator who died back in, I think, 2011. And 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 this is a man who 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 was single lifelong, and yet he's 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 world famous for writing thousands of articles, hundreds of books that have blessed Christians worldwide. Uh, his his most notable book would be titled Basic Christianity. And this is a man who has who has preached at hundreds of churches. He, he's taught at, at colleges and universities where he spent his life equipping young people to walk their faith in the Lord. This is a man who was single, but he used all of his time to further the kingdom of God. Now, some, like John Stott, have that calling. That's the call in their life. But then again, some of you don't. So what I'm saying is that, you know what? Maybe you're called to be single for life, or maybe you're just called to be single for now. Single at the moment. Listen to this. If you're not married but you have a desire to be married, but you're not currently married, guess what? You're called to be single for now. (laughs) Single for the moment. And there's nothing wrong with that. Being single at the moment, listen, that's not a plague. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't need to be fixed. As as author Mark Lee put it, he said, society holds that quote-unquote normal people are married. So if you're not married, you're not normal. We all forget that all people are single for a time. Even the church forgets that all happily married people were once happily single people. So listen, it's it's good. It's a gift. Treat it like a gift. Whether it's for now or for life, it's a gift. In fact, keep in mind, even Jesus himself was single his entire life. And as author H.L. Mencken put it, he said, it's impossible to believe that that the same God who permitted his own son to die as a bachelor would, would view singleness as a sin. And so there are some who are called for life, there are some who are called for now, but view it as a gift. You can use your time and your energy for the kingdom of God. Now, number two, we said that marriage is also a gift. Marriage is a gift. Listen to this, Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19.14, a prudent wife is from the Lord. That's what we're saying is, listen, if you're married, then treat your spouse like the gift from God they really are. Treat your spouse like the gift of God that they really are. Now, not only is, is marriage a gift, but I said earlier, it's also a mystery. Marriage is a mystery. Here's why I say that. I say that because later on in, in a different book that the Apostle Paul wrote called Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells men to love and to cherish their wives, and he also tells wives to, to respect their husbands. Men to love their wives, wives to respect their husbands. Now, here's what's interesting. Years back, the, the Department of so- uh, Psychology at, at the University of Washington conducted a, an, an extensive nationwide 20-year study where they studied more than 2,000 couples who've been married between 20 to 40 years and they found that every successful marriage had two ingredients. Those ingredients were love and respect. Just like the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago told us. He told husbands to love their wives and wives to respect respect. Their husbands. Let me reword that. What he's saying is is treat your spouse like the gift of God they actually are. Love them, cherish them, and respect them. Treat them like the gift of God they really are. Now, with that in mind, I want to let you know that whether you whether you know it or not, you and your marriage are being watched. You you and your marriage are being watched by, by your unbelieving neighbors. You're, you're being watched by your unbelieving coworkers. You're being watched by your unbelieving family members. They watch you, and they watch their marriage. In fact, Amy and I, uh, years ago, were, were reminded of this. We have a, a couple on our street that, that was going through a, a bad time in their marriage, and, and they had admitted to us that they, that they watch us. That they, they pay attention to how we treat each other. They, they pay attention to, to how we talk and, 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 and interact with each other. And they notice that, that we don't have these knock-down, drag-out fights. Now, I'm not saying we don't have our moments of, of, you know, contention. And we like to call them intimate fellowship. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, but we, we have our moments. But they, they notice how, how we interact with each other. And they're like, you know, what? we want what you have. And well, you know that you are being Watched. It's like J. Paul Getty, uh, some of you have been to the Getty Center in Los Angeles, and, and if you have, you know that J. Paul Getty was one of the, one of the richest man, men, men alive. And so being one of the richest men alive, I mean, this is a man who had everything you could imagine. So we can't picture him, you know, wanting something different, or, or being unhappy, or being uncontent. And we can especially not, 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 not picture him, you know, being envious of anyone. I mean, he had everything, What could he possibly be envious of? And yet on more than one occasion, he admitted that he was envious of those who knew how to make marriage work. He was envious of those who knew how to be happy in marriage. This is coming from a man who had been married and divorced five different times. You are being watched. Now on that note, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 32 and 33, the Apostle Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let, let, let each one of you love his, his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So not only does Paul say to to love and cherish your wives, and wives respect your husbands, but before that he says that marriage is a mystery, and he's saying that it actually speaks of Christ and and, and the church. In other words, what he's saying is this, he's saying that when a Christian man and a Christian woman are married, when, when you are married to one another, your marriage in many ways is like a living gospel tract to the watching world that as they watch your marriage, it should be pointing them to Jesus. Your marriage should be pointing them to Jesus. In in other words, in a culture that's kissing marriage goodbye, uh, in a culture where where divorce is more common than the common cold, in in a culture uh, that that is filled with adultery and and every form of sexual immorality that you can think of, in in a culture that that treats marriage like a joke, in a culture that, 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 that says that a happy marriage is a mystery... Your marriage should be modeling in front of them that, yeah, you know what? Marriage is a mystery, but it's a mystery that can be solved when it's done God's way. When when a man loves and cherishes his wife, like the Bible says, When when a woman respects her husband, like the Bible says, that marriage is a mystery that can be solved when it's done God's way. Your marriage should be pointing them to Jesus. You know, maybe... Maybe you're married, and, and maybe your marriage at the moment is a little bit on the rocks. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's not where it should be. Maybe you're a Christian, a Christian man and a Christian woman, but you're, you're still having these, these difficulties in your marriage. Hey, listen, there's nothing wrong with getting a little bit of help. There's nothing wrong with, with going to a godly person to get some advice, to get somebody to point you in the right direction, to help you remember how to treat them like the gift of God they really are. Amen? Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.